Well, good morning. I pray that you've enjoyed being a disciple of Jesus this week. Today, we're talking about everyday discipleship. We're in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. And Paul has some really practical instructions for us around family life and also the workplace. I'll start with a story, and I think maybe I shared part of this story with you a number of years ago, but I'm going to add to it. Twelve years ago, my wife and I, we were discerning whether we might, or God might be wanting to have us move from Brazil to Canada. So we involved our children in the conversation. They were obviously much younger at that time. And uh, I remember talking to our youngest daughter about that, and she was just resisting the change. She had such good friends in Brazil. The day finally came when we had to decide, and I communicated the decision to church leadership. Later that day, my daughter was with me, and she said, Dad, did you tell the church leaders that we would move? And I said, yes, I did. And she said, well, I'm 11. I guess I have to go with you, but don't expect me to stay. A number of months later, we were in Canada, We had just arrived, and it was morning, breakfast, and I thought, I'll do the fatherly thing. I'll gather the family and say a few things, and I asked our children, why do you think God brought us from Brazil to Canada? And my youngest daughter looked at me, and she said, do you mean to tell me that we moved from Sao Paulo to Canada, and you don't know why? (laughs) It wasn't getting better for her. Why should she obey these parents that didn't know what they were doing? Why do children obey their parents? For how long should children obey their parents? For how long should they honor their parents? Paul has instructions for us around family life. So much of what we need to learn about life, we actually learn in the home. And then he also talks about the workplace. The things that we learn at home, we often take into the workplace. And so he says things about how we should relate to one another in the workplace. If you have worked for any length of time, you've probably had a boss or a manager that maybe hasn't treated you fairly. And so how does knowing Jesus help you face that kind of situation? The main point of the message today is at home, And in the workplace, every act of leadership and every step of obedience is offered freely under the lordship of Christ. Every act of leadership, every step of obedience is offered freely under the lordship of Christ. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. 
Masters, do the same to them. And stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there, there is no partiality with him. A few words just by way of introduction to the text. First, this household orientation, and I'm referring to it as household orientation because the slaves would have lived with their families, serving the families, living in the home of their masters. This household orientation, it should be understood within the context of Ephesians that Paul is calling all believers to walk in a manner worthy of their calling, to walk in love, to walk in the light, to walk with wisdom in their relationships. Secondly, earlier in chapter 5, he has said that all followers of Jesus are to be filled with the Spirit. The way that they are to work out their relationships, this has to be done under the filling of the Spirit. That's the natural outworking of this filling. And so it's not to be done without the help of the Lord. Third, Paul assumes that the children and the parents that he's addressing, the slaves and the masters, they're a part of the same church family. They are now in Christ together. He uses words like in the Lord, of the Lord, as to the Lord, as you would Christ, as servants of Christ. Ultimately, they all submit to the same Lord. And then fourthly, As I said a number of weeks ago, this household orientation, it needs to be understood within the broader teaching of Jesus and that of the apostles. And they taught some things that just rocked the Jewish, Roman, and Greek worlds. Three foundational truths, at at least. One, the dignity of women, children, and servants. Second, the equality of all human beings before God, irrespective of race, rank, class, culture, sex, or age. And then thirdly, they emphasize something profound. And the emphasis in the New Testament is not so much on equality as it is on unity. The fact that children and parents, masters and slaves, are now members of the same body. They're united. There's a joint inheritance. They're together forever. The emphasis in the the New Testament isn't so much on equal human beings that kind of coexist independently with equal opportunity. The emphasis is on God's people being one, now and forever. They're bound together. And that teaching transforms the church in the first century and the world around it. Well, let's go to verse 1. What is the orientation given to children? Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Notice that both parents are included, not only the father, also the mother. Obey, it just means to listen to, to do what one is told, to submit to the authority of another. The first reason given for the children's obedience is it's done in the Lord. When a Christian child obeys, it's actually an act of discipleship. The child is ultimately obeying the parent because of Jesus. Colossians chapter 3, verse 20, a parallel passage. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. And so the Christian child is expected to submit to the parent. The principle is that 
The child that is subject should obey as long as that obedience does not go against the clear teaching of Jesus. As long as it does not go against the conscience of the child. And so let's imagine a Christian child that is in the home of a non-believing parent. That child in his or her heart can worship Jesus, can honor Jesus, can serve Jesus, no, ma- no matter what his or her condition. The parent cannot demand that the child no longer follow Jesus. But let's say that that young child desires to be baptized, which would be an act of obedience to Jesus. And the parent says, no, you cannot be baptized. Well, in that case, I believe the scriptures would guide the child to wait Submit to the authority of the parent. When the time comes and you as an adult can make your decision for yourself, then make it and follow Jesus in obedience. The Lord provides wisdom for children that are in the homes of non-believing parents. But they are to do their obedience, obey in the Lord. Secondly, children are to obey for this is right. Paul seems to communicate that this is just a general understanding. It's natural law. And as we observe life around the world, this is the God-ordained ordering of life. In societies around the world, it's just understood that children should obey their parents. That this brings stability to the home and stability to society. And then third, more importantly, the reason given is that this is the revealed will of God. In verses 2 and 3, Paul Uh, He seems to bring together two verses from the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, Deuteronomy 5, verse 16, and then he adds a comment. Verse 2, honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. When we look at the Ten Commandments, the first four have to do with our relationship with God. The last six have to do with our relationship with other human beings. The first of the last six is the one that we read in verse 2, honor your father and mother. And this command carries a promise. What does it mean to honor? Well, it means to hold in high value, to esteem. During our childhood, our parents are to mediate to us God's authority, his love. That's the way God has intended it. If a Christian child dishonors his or her parents, he or she is actually dishonoring God. For the child, honoring parents should be the first step in learning to obey God, to honor God. So there's a principle here. Under the lordship of Christ, children learn to be disciples of Christ by obeying their parents. Paul says that they should obey, and not only obey, but honor. As in the obeying, when Paul speaks about honoring, he speaks about both parents. Honor your father and mother, as he quotes the Old Testament. In the Old Covenant, the covenant of Moses, children were promised long life, well-being, long life in the land of Israel. Sometimes when people read this same promise in the New Testament, they spiritualize it and say, well, that long life, that just refers to eternal life. I think we do the text in injustice. I believe that the Old Testament principle applies to the new. It is true for Christian children that as they follow Jesus, as they obey their parents, 
They come under the blessing of God and receive that promise of long life, wherever they might be on earth. Who are these obedient children? Is Paul just addressing children between, what, zero, ten years of age? Is he speaking to teenagers? Is he speaking to young adults? Is he speaking to unmarried children that live at home? Who is he speaking to? What does it mean to honor parents throughout life? First, it's important to recognize that parents should be honored throughout life. Whatever the age of the parent, whatever the age of the child, honoring is for life. Secondly, the relationship between children and parents, well, that changes over time. The kind of obedience that you expect from a young child is not the kind of obedience that you expect from a grown adult child. Third, different cultures, they will view obedience and honoring in different ways. And wherever possible, cultural expectations should be respected. Wherever the cultural expectation does not go against the clear teaching of Jesus. What about those children that kind of live between cultures, between the culture of their parents and grandparents from the old country and the culture of the new land? What should they do? It's easy for children in this kind of situation to say, well, the ideas of my parents and grandparents, their, their values, that's from the old land, has nothing to do with where we are today. I need to form my own identity here. And children can easily dismiss the counsel and the wisdom of their parents and grandparents. So some orientation. First of all, children and their parents should ask for wisdom. The Lord has wisdom. Both cultures, they need to be evaluated in the light of Scripture. Second, parents and their children, and sometimes grandparents are in the conversation, they need to keep the conversation going, keep it open. This, this cultural tension, this tension between the old and the new, it's a wonderful opportunity for discipleship. It's a great opportunity to discover the truth of Jesus that transcends all cultures. And both children and parents will have something to learn in this conversation. I think of a mother who had extended conversations with her teenage children when they moved from another continent to Canada. And so much had changed. One thing that had changed was the way that children, parents, and grandparents related to each other across generations. It was completely different. Another thing that changed was the way that men and women were expected to dress. Whose values determine how we dress where we live today? Another thing that changed was the kind of dating that was done in Canada. How do you view dating in the new world? Well, what needs to happen is that the conversation needs to remain alive. Parents, children, grandparents participating in the conversation, listening to one another, asking the question, what does Scripture say? What is the truth of Jesus for each one of us? Paul has words for children. He also has words for parents. Verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the, of the Lord. It's important to understand the context. In the Jewish, Greek, and Roman worlds, parents, they had absolute authority. In particular, the fathers. 
They could punish their children. They could rebuke them. They could beat them, degrade them. They could sell them into slavery. In some cases, they could even execute their children. Absolute authority. And with Paul's instructions, we have a completely new perspective. He doesn't begin by authorizing this absolute authority of the fathers. He begins with a word of restraint. What does he say? Do not provoke to anger. Do not provoke to anger. Literally, do not bring your children along in such a way that they have growing within them deep-seated bitterness. (laughs) Don't exasperate your children, the NIV translates. How do we exasperate our children? I mean, we're so well-meaning as parents, right? We tend to repeat ourselves. That's one way that we exasperate our children. We say things like, clean your room. Don't be late. Make sure you do your homework. Work hard. And we're so well-meaning. But our children respond with, Dad, I already know. Mom, I've heard that before. And we think, well, why why don't you do it? (laughs) We don't want to be nagging. We don't want to critique our children every day, but we can do that so easily. And we have to recognize how fragile our children are. They're in a vulnerable position. We have to be careful with words because words, they remain, they linger. And often children will carry these words right into adulthood. So are we being kind or do we address address our children with sarcasm, with ridicule? The anger of the child often grows out of a, just a frustration of not being able to live up to the standard of his or her parents. Just can't meet the expectation. And the words are demanding, they're nagging. How many adults live angry? Live angry because of difficult experiences in their childhood. They grow up angry and then carry that anger into adult life, into the workplace, into their marriages, and if they have children, into their, the lives of their children. The good news of the gospel, of course, is that there's freedom from that anger. In chapter 4, Paul talks about not allowing the devil to get a secure foothold in your heart of learning to forgive, releasing anger, extending grace to others. That is there for us. Whether we are children or parents, it's there for us. We can walk free. Paul says to fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That word, bring them up, it's, it's to nourish, it's to, to, to provide for them with tender care. The same word that Paul uses in chapter 5, verse 29, when he talks about the way that Jesus cares for the church, cherishes it, treats it with loving, tender care. In the same way, parents are to bring up their children, nourish them. He talks about discipline and instruction of the Lord. That word, discipline refers more to child training, correction, probably what's appropriate for a young child. The word instruction appears to say more about 
exerting influence on the mind, verbal encouragement, counsel, warning. Probably what's more appropriate for a teen or a young adult. The instruction offered is of the law. It's not based in common sense, in humanism, in religious law. It's centered in Christ. So let's say that you as a parent have the letter to the Ephesians in front of you, and that's your curriculum. You're going to raise your child in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. What might you be able to say to your child? Let's say the child is struggling with his or her identity. Well, you could go back to the gospel as revealed in Ephesians, and you could say, hey, son, daughter, you've given your heart to Jesus. You've been saved by grace. And you are fully accepted as you are. You are God's masterpiece. And God has recreated you in Christ Jesus for good works. God has a purpose for you, a calling on your life. What if that child was facing challenges? Well, you could go to Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 3 and say, Child, remain rooted in the love of God. It's far greater than anything you could ever imagine. And God can do more in your life than you could ever ask or imagine. Trust him. The gospel is rich. What if that child were struggling in their relationships? Well, again, you could go to chapter 4 and you could show your child how they are to extend forgiveness to others because they have experienced so much grace. Show them how they might walk in freedom, how they might walk in love, how they might walk in the light, in sexual purity, how they might walk with wisdom. The gospel is rich. There's a a full curriculum if we just take the scriptures and instruct our children in the way of the Lord. The key to parenting, of course, is leading our children to Jesus. And it's much easier to say that sometimes than to see that happen. But if our child gives his or her heart to Jesus, then they are wrestling with the lordship of Christ and not so much our authority. They're wrestling with what it means to follow Jesus. And we as parents have the opportunity to come alongside the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. It's a completely different dynamic. As parents, we need mentors, don't we? We need counselors to come alongside our children. We need the help of school and church. We have an amazing kids' ministry here at Willingdon, and this is what our kids' ministry team believes. At Willingdon Kids, our purpose is for children and their families to know Jesus Christ personally and to carry on his ministry. We believe that parents and families are the primary spiritual caregivers. To this end, our hope is to come alongside you to raise kids who know Jesus as Savior and Lord, grow daily in the knowledge and love of God by the power of the Holy Spirit, Go into and throughout the world boldly and obediently proclaiming who he is and what he has done. By providing sound teaching rooted in God's word, our hope is to equip and support you in your God-given roles. So the understanding of kids' ministry is very biblical. Those given the responsibility to raise their children are the parents. We as parents have this God-ordained role. Now, by God's grace, we're a part of the family of faith, and kids' ministry comes alongside us to help us, to equip us, so that our children might grow in their faith and learn to serve Him. 
As parents, we need to walk with humility. We need the help of others. And as we pray for our children, God will bring others into their lives to help them learn to follow Christ. A second principle from the text. Under the lordship of Christ, fathers, and mothers are included here, fathers disciple their children in the way of Christ. As parents, we, we need the help of the Holy Spirit, don't we, to parent well. Each child is different. As they grow, they change. The parenting relationship, it changes over time. I think of one young Christian woman that went off to university. And in her second year of university, she was attracted to a young man. They started to date. He wasn't a believer. Her parents were really concerned about this young man's character, his values, how he would influence their daughter. But the daughter said to her parents, don't interfere, let me decide. Maybe you as a parent have experienced this, I have. What do you do when your adult child says, don't interfere, let me decide? Well, you get on your knees and pray. (laughs) In the case of this young woman, she dated that man for some time and then she wrote an email to her father and said, Dad, what do you think? She opened the door. And the father said, before God, I'm going to use this opportunity. I'm not going to miss it. I never want to wake up and say, I didn't take the opportunity to say what I think. And he said, daughter, I love you dearly. More importantly, God loves you dearly. And if you stay in this relationship, this is the way that I believe it will impact you personally. This is the way that it will impact your marriage should you get married. This is the way that it will impact your children should you have children. This is the way that your dad sees it. You make your decision, but this is what your father sees. Some time passed and that young woman walked away from that relationship. It was difficult, but she walked away. That doesn't always happen. But the way that we parent, it changes over time. And no matter what the circumstance, no matter what the phase in life, God is present to help us, to encourage us, to strengthen us, to give us wisdom. And to do parenting well, of course, we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Home, Well, the way God has designed it, it's the training ground for life. It's in the home that we learn our first lessons around obedience, authority. If our parents are Christian, they introduce Jesus to us. We learn to relate to the opposite sex. We learn to work together. So many foundational lessons are learned in the home. And those lessons we learn, we carry into adult life. In verse 5, Paul transitions and he starts talking about the relationship between slaves and masters. And you might say, well, what does that have to do with us? We don't live in a world where slavery is common. Let's just look at the world of Paul and the first century Christians and then see what there is for us. A few words about slavery. Slavery seems to have been almost universal in the ancient world. Probably one-third of the population in the Roman Empire was in slavery. Some estimate the number to be as many as 60 million slaves. So, 
slaves were a part of daily life. In the church, slaves would have been present. In the second century AD, the jurist Florentinus, he defines slavery as an institution of the common law of the peoples whereby someone, contrary to nature, is subject to the ownership of another. For the Greeks, slaves, they were not complete people. They were like possessions with a soul. The Romans saw them as persons but did not treat them any better. Roman slave owners, they had complete authority over their slaves. They could punish them. They could beat them, imprison them. They could sell them and in some cases execute them. How did people become slaves in the ancient world? Often, you know, when we think about slavery, images come to mind of slavery in the Americas. We think it has to do with race, with ethnicity. Well, in the ancient world, it was quite different. People became slaves because of unpayable debts. They became slaves because their people group was conquered by another. Some even sold themselves into slavery. And you might think, well, why would anyone do that? Well, sometimes life was easier as a slave than as a free person. Food, clothing, and shelter was provided by the master. In some cases, a person would sell himself or herself into slavery to learn a skill. And so there are many stories of people learning to be cooks and butlers and accountants, even physicians. And in the Roman world, there was the understanding that you could regain your freedom, that you would be under contract for a while, and eventually the day would come when you would be free. And had you learned this skill, well, then, of course, your life as a free person would be so much better. And for some slaves, they were even promised Roman citizenship. So this is the reality that Paul is writing to. Now listen to his word to slaves. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or is free. So Paul is speaking directly to slaves here. Remember that they're a part of the body of Christ in Ephesus. They're members. He addresses them as full members. That already communicates a radical shift in understanding. They're not just possessions with the soul or persons with no rights. No, they're actually members of the body of Christ. In verse 5, he says, obey your masters with whole hearts, with sincere hearts, with integrity. Do it as you would Christ. Remember that when you serve your master, you're actually serving Christ. He is your master. He says that four times in four verses. They were to serve not just as those that serve as to eye service, as people pleasers, but with whole hearts unto Christ. Now, if you have been employed, perhaps you are. I know what it's like to be more attentive to my work when the boss is watching and then relax a little bit when he's not or she is not. That's what is the same reality for slaves and masters. And so Paul says to slaves, serve with whole hearts. 
with integrity, with sincerity, whether the master is watching or not. What would motivate a a slave to serve well? Well, first of all, again, their primary obligation is to Jesus. The motivation should come from within. And then secondly, Jesus is their ultimate authority, and he will not ignore, he will not forget their selfless, selfless service. He will reward every faithful servant equally, whether slave or free. When he returns in judgment, social status will not come into question. What will matter is our service to the Lord, our love for Jesus, our relationship with him, and he will keep his promises to us whether we are slave or free. Now, Paul writes to a world of slavery and masters. We live in a very different world of employers and employees. But I believe there's a principle that we can draw from the text. Under the lordship of Christ, employees serve their employers with sincerity and integrity, no matter what the situation. This principle was revolutionary for the first uh, century church. And it continues to have an impact around the world. One of the things that we notice as we observe the growth of the church around the world is that often when the Christian faith lands on the shores of a new empire or a new uh, country, enters the life of a new people group, those that first come to faith are often the poor, the servants, the outcasts, those that live on the margins of that society. And when those people that live sometimes in subhuman conditions receive the gospel, they are filled with hope, a new hope in Jesus. The seeds of the kingdom are planted in their hearts, seeds of transformation. They begin to relate to their families, to those around them in a new way. Their condition in life doesn't change dramatically from one day to the next. If they are poor, they often remain poor for a time. Sometimes as outcasts, they are never accepted by the larger society. But in Jesus, they have a new identity. And because of their transformation, others around them are impacted. This has happened over and over again. This is the upside-down kingdom of Jesus. You know, history, it's often written from the perspective of the powerful or the educated. It will be very interesting to read the story of the growth of the kingdom of God around the world from the perspective of Jesus. And I think as Jesus writes this story, many times at the heart, at the center of the story, you will find throughout church history, slaves, poor, servants, outcasts, that have embraced Jesus as Savior and Lord, and their lives have been completely transformed. And because of that, others have come to faith. And now in verse 9, an even more remarkable word. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. What does do the same to them mean? Well, as I've already said, masters were often tyrannical, often abusive. They would threaten their slaves with harassment, threatened to sell them away from the household, away from the people they loved. Now Paul says, don't take advantage of your slaves by threatening them. Don't misuse your authority. The same respect, the same sincerity, 
The same wholeheartedness that you expect from your slaves, direct that toward them. Be like that toward your slaves. So again, we're not in a world of masters and slaves, but a principle could be applied to us. Under the lordship of Christ, employers serve their employees in the same way, the same respect, the same integrity, the same wholeheartedness, the same love. Why should masters serve God in this way? Well, they are to imitate him, and God is impartial. Second, they must remember that they, say they serve the same Lord. Day, the day is coming when masters and slaves will stand before Jesus together, and there will be no preferential treatment because of status. Wherever we are in life, whatever our condition, the calling is for us to work to serve as we would Christ. One question that's frequently asked is, well, why doesn't Paul just call for the abolition of slavery here? Why does he allow for it? Why does he encourage slaves to serve their masters well? Well, again, just the fact because we come to Jesus doesn't mean that all circumstances in life are changed. Jesus gives us power, strength, wisdom to face life. And the slaves that received the gospel, they would continue to serve as slaves for a time. So they need to know what it means to be Christian while they are in slavery. Christianity did did not dominate the empire. The Christian church was a minority. They had to learn to live under governing authorities. And then the focus of the Christian faith, it has always been on the transformation of human hearts. And as people are transformed, as they learn to follow Christ, as they learn to obey parents and submit to slaves, to serve well, the whole society is changed. In antiquity, slavery slowly died. It died out through the influence of Christianity. And then Paul teaches something which is so radical and foundational. He teaches slaves and masters, children and parents, that they are one in Christ, that they are bound together in Christ forever. And this should alter their relationships completely. That principle was revolutionary in the first century, and it continues to be revolutionary to this day. Whoever we are, wherever we are, we all exercise authority in some way. We all submit to others in some way. Every act of submission, it requires a confidence in the goodness of God, the authority of God over all things, the sovereignty of God, his steadfast love, his faithfulness. Every time you and I submit, it's an act of trust in God. We learn to trust at home. If we are children and we have parents, then the first lessons that we learn around obedience, we learn at home. We learn foundational lessons for life. We learn to work with our parents. And we carry these lessons that we learn into adult life. The relationship between children and parents, it changes, it evolves over time. I started with a story about my 11-year-old daughter. Well, she's grown up. Twelve years later, she's 23. She now thinks that she's 
an adult, a professional, that she can make her own decisions. And I bless her for it. Thankfully, God has brought alongside us many Christian mentors that have helped her in her journey. She has left home a number of times to go study, to do different things. The other day, we were having a conversation, and she confronted me on a certain matter, and I said to her, you know, you're being really confrontational. And she said, Dad, do you expect me to remain quiet? This is the sign of a healthy relationship. And I said, healthy for whom? (laughs) I expect her to share her views with me. God has given her a mind, passions, a heart, a desire to follow him. Thankfully, she's given her heart to Jesus. Someday, I won't be able to make decisions for myself. And I pray that on that day, she will make good decisions for me, that she will continue to honor me. Honoring is for life. One day, my daughter and I, we will stand before the same Lord. Jesus will not judge us based on she being a child, me being a parent. He will ask the question, have you served me? Have you loved me? And Jesus will judge fairly. No matter what our condition or role in life, we will stand on level ground before Jesus, our Lord. And again, the question will be for each of us, have we loved Jesus? In the condition that we have found ourselves, have we served Jesus with our whole hearts? In Jesus, he will judge justly. He will keep his promise. He will reward. And we will live with him for eternity. If we are in Jesus, then he has paid the price so that we might stand before him and enter eternity with him. And so the question for those of you who don't know Jesus is, are you ready to meet him? We will all meet Jesus. We will all confess one day Jesus as Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it instructs us. And I pray that your truth might remain with my brothers and sisters, that throughout the week, Lord, you will continue to apply your truth to their lives, to my life, no matter where we are, whether at home, in the workplace, at school, God, may we know how to apply your truth to our lives and follow you faithfully. Thank you that you're with us by your spirit to guide us, to instruct us, to inspire us, to lead us forward. And so we trust you to lead us. May we be your people in this city, in this day. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you.